This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. World is upside down now. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind some of the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, is the highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. It's great to be with you. And returning to the roundup, Frank Sadler. Frank is the chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises. He also served as the campaign manager for Carly's 2016 presidential campaign and was an advisor to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia. Frank, welcome back. It's great to have you on again. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys. On this week's roundup, we're going to discuss how the size of the Republican primary field will impact Donald Trump's chances of winning and the announcement that the attorney general has appointed a special counsel to lead their investigations into Trump. We'll also break down why divided government might be more productive than you'd expect. And then we'll take a look at the Wall Street Journal's reporting about the federal government failing to enforce conflict of interest rules and the changing positions on banning members of Congress from trading stock. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss the World Cup, the Iranian soccer team's protests, people being denied entry because of rainbow clothing, and the competing interests when doing business with oppressive regimes. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. And there are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com plus. And that gets you a link you can use in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show there and tap the button that says Try Free. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so less than a week after Donald Trump's announcement that he's going to be running for president again in 2024, as some of the biggest players in the Republican Party spent the weekend in my hometown of Las Vegas for the Republican Jewish Coalition's annual meeting, the annual meeting also marked the first major gathering of influential Republican well, establishment figures anyway, since the party's dramatic underperformance in the midterms. Trump did not make the trip to Vegas, but he addressed them live uh, via satellite as part of a lineup that includes several potential challengers for the 2024 nomination, including South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and most notably, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So RJC Executive Director Matt Brooks told CNN, quote, People are window shopping right now. There are people who are asking if we need a new direction and a new face. But while some of the established high-dollar donors inside and outside of the RJC are exploring potential alternatives to Trump, his allies have told CNN that Trump's fundraising machine has relied on small-dollar donors. Now, regular Politicology listeners know that the paradigm shift in political fundraising from a small group of wealthy people to a crowdsourced grassroots fundraising base is something I've been banging on about for a long time now. And that's why Trump's recent jabs at DeSantis and Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin are more interesting to me. So two sources from Trump's camp told CNN that he has picked up uh, the attacks on the governors and potential primary opponents because they're actively soliciting support from what he says are his donors. Um, Now, the reason this is so interesting to me is that if they have any hope of building a war chest or uh, at minimum, right, fueling a campaign that can keep pace with or outlast the competition, they have to convince some portion of Trump's grassroots fundraising base to open their wallets over and over again. Uh, And this is still a one-person race, right? Donald Trump is the only person so far in any party who's declared he's running for president. Uh, So why don't, Susan, you lead off here and... Tell us how the political dynamic is different since he's the only candidate running. And also, how would you advise these other potential candidates about timing their own announcements? Sure. And I'd just like to caution those other candidates. When I go window shopping, I walk around, I look, maybe I try on. But when I see that price tag, I may start having second thoughts. And I'd rather go with what's in my closet. So I think that's what you're going to see with quite a few um folks when they start looking at the at the whole lineup. But you bring up a great issue about money. We all know that in a general election, there's always plenty of money. There just is. It just will be. But the primary, it will be very interesting to see if the donors who have had enough of Donald Trump put their money behind anybody so they can be competitive. It'll also be interesting to see if they just do it behind maybe three or four Because the big problem for the establishment is you have 10 Republican candidates running. Even if Trump only gets 25, 30 percent of the vote, he'll still win because the other will be others will be all split. The other 70 percent evenly among seven people. There you go. 10 percent. Trump gets 30. So I think right now it is probably wise for candidates to keep their profile low and just keep with the meetings. Because frankly, Donald Trump gets to make points and stay in the press every time he picks on somebody else. So he wants to go after Ron DeSantis, great. Now we have a DeSantis-Trump fight in the media. 
that benefits Donald Trump. That's his oxygen. The media is his oxygen. So I would definitely want to keep it more on the on the lowest, uh, keep it low key for now. So Frank, this takes us back to uh, the early stages of the primary in 2015. Uh, I'm thinking back to um, which, uh, as you know, we you were my boss on the Carly Fiorina campaign, right? And and one of the things that um, one of the things we did was at the very beginning uh, to recognize that we needed to present um, Carly an, an opportunity to, to introduce herself to the American people, right? And the way we did that was by asking people to open their wallets so that we could get her on the debate stage, right? It was one of the most su- successful fundraising pushes uh, uh, that we had that cycle. And I wonder what similarities you see to this potential primary that's shaping up right now and what these other candidates are going to have to do to appeal to this to this grassroots fundraising base, yeah, I mean it. It is feeling eerily similar. I I hate to say. Um, I think there's a couple big differences, however. Right, one is that we see Trump coming. So when I think back, and I'm only going to speak for myself, to May and June of 2015, um, you know, I thought of it as a blip. Right, so I was still concerned about how does Carly get to Iowa? How does she get to New Hampshire? I was not particularly concerned about Trump. And um, while it's not fair to speak for the folks who ran Rubio's campaign or Cruz's or Jeb's or Walker's, my guess is they felt the same way, right? Like, let this guy do what he's going to do. We're going to go run our campaign. We have a plan, right? Ron, you and I, uh, other folks on our team, we had a plan. We're going to go execute the plan. Um, I feel like that's kind of the road we're going down again. And that's concerning, I think, um, as was already said, uh, Trump has the ability to utilize the media in a way that I'm not convinced anyone else can. And that generates low dollar fundraising, right? So yes, do debates help? Does the lead up to debates help? Sure. As Ron just said, and this was true after multiple wonderful performances by Carla on the debate stage. Yeah, we had great fundraising. Um, that's not sufficient in a primary, right? So money money is important in a primary, ask Scott Walker's folks, um, right? You need money to keep going, but that's not actually the end-all be-all. You've got to be present in voters' minds. And um, the way the primary breaks out into these multiple states Money doesn't do that for you. You've got to be on Fox News. You've got to be in the uh, ecosystem within conservative radio. And Trump's really, really good at that. Now, maybe others will be really good at that, too, this year. Um, That wasn't true in 2015. It wasn't true in 2016. But, Frank, I'm just curious because I I agree with so much that you said there. But for other candidates to come out and stick out their heads too soon, don't they risk Trump coming after them in such a way that Trump sucks up that oxygen. Yeah, yeah. Even I, what, for what they're seeking. Yeah, so I agree hundred percent. I don't think the strategy, if I were gonna advise somebody other than Trump for this primary, yeah, I'm not so sure that the candidate coming out attacking Trump or going head to head is the right way. But I think there needs to be a coalition of Republicans led maybe by donors to say, yeah, there has to be an effort against Trump, right? That was something that didn't happen in 2015, right? We didn't all get in a room and say, okay, we're going to go at, we're going to go build another organization simply to go after Trump. 
Okay. Some of us okay, tried. I, I will say <laughs> I was I never saw Trump. I didn't think Trump would get the nomination. But back in 2015, my biggest fear was he was going to make it so bad for Republicans and pollute the primary so much that voters would be so turned off no matter who got the nomination, not thinking it was Trump. I was um, I started a group that could not get funded. And I'll tell you why in a minute. It was called Americans for the Real Deal. And it was just going to be straight to camera people talking about the scams that Donald Trump pulled on them. And when I went to donors, they all said, ah, don't worry, it won't be Trump. It'll be Rubio. Yeah, yeah, or, oh, right. don't worry. Worst case, it's Cruz. And um, again, not seeing that I certainly did not think Trump would be the nominee, but I thought he would make it really bad for whoever. Yeah, so you be. were 100 percent right. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't help. Um, but yeah, this year, the way, the kind of the way I think about this, it's like the way an industry builds a trade association, right? So if you're Coca-Cola and Pepsi, yeah, you don't want to come out and fight against certain things with your brand name. So you, you go to your trade association and say like, oh, we don't want this new regulation on, you know, a tax on sugar, for example. And so they have the trade association go fight that war. And so there's no ads. That's fantastic. But that's what has to happen here, that's right? Is really the good. donors for let's call it Tim Scott, you know, Christy, Sununu, whomever. Yeah, they got to go build a trade association that's essentially saying anyone but Trump. Now, that sounds easy. It's really hard, right? Because every campaign wants to suck up every dollar they can. It's a zero-sum game. So they're going to say every dollar that goes to that doesn't go to another ad for Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, right? Or another ad for Christy in Iowa. But at the end of the day, somebody, some entity has to take on this Trump thing that is not um, liberal, right? In the primary, right? That's really important. Um, but it's really hard. Easy to say, hard to do. And, and there's a big difference here between, you know, a, a one or two or three person primary and a free for all like there was in 2015. But don't it, you it think changes the dynamics? But don't you think we're getting there? Like why? I've been thinking yeah. about this for the last month. Like if I were advising somebody, so Tim Scott. Christy, uh, Gnome, you name the person, Mike Rogers, any of these people like, and they said, well, Frank, should I run? I, I think I'd say, yeah, like it's a wide open field. It's the same advice I gave to Carly. Not that she needed my advice, but like, yeah, Carly, you should run. It's an open field. You're an incredibly brilliant, thoughtful, experienced leader. The country deserves to have someone like you, but like you could see everyone making that argument. Set aside the financials, there's a whole nother piece, right? If you're a consultant and you're on team, you know, Tim Scott, you want him to run. It's good for you financially. So, like, they're all going to convince their guys um, to run. So they're all running. Yeah, but you're, to your point about association, I love that. Like, they should all group together. If there was enough big money, because there is only so much big money out there, Kind of, and I'm not saying this is a good idea, but this is politics and what yeah. works is that if they could say, like, we're not, listen, stay out of this one. We're going with one, two, or three. And, you know, that's, these are the, we're all kind of splitting them up or whatever. And you will be taken care of kind of either in the future or something. Like, this is not your time. It would have to be like this big establishment cabal 
that would have to come together. I don't think it would, but it, to me, it's the only way to keep it from being a complete mess. Yeah, so I don't because I don't Frank's right. I don't think you can talk the candidates or their consultants into not running. I think there's a I chance agree with that. you could talk donors into saying, "Yeah, you need to give like, Chris Christie get. the max for the yeah. primary, give money to his super PAC, and and you have to go give money to this outside group who's only going to attack Trump." Yeah, I think that's right. But the big the, the, this this bring me, brings me back to the point I opened with, which is in another in a past life that would have been a really effective strategy if you could lock up the high dollar donor base and get them all on the same page about that. But they just, to me, don't have as much influence as they used to because of the way fundraising has changed. They just don't have as much cachet. Yeah, except for Ron, you know this, right? The The nice thing about high dollar donors is they could jumpstart something that could then help you yeah. raise low dollar, True. right? So it's really yep. hard to start with low dollar, but if you could start with a couple guys writing real checks it could help you build the infrastructure to then go raise the low dollars. Yeah, good point. Seed funding. So the other piece of this Trump story is, uh, obviously, even after launching his own presidential bid, he's still got the specter of potential federal indictment looming over his head. Last Friday, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that a special prosecutor is going to oversee two major investigations into Trump. The first is the criminal investigation into whether or not an individual or entity interfered with the transfer of power after the 2020 election. Uh, and second is the probe into the classified records and documents from the Mar-a-Lago search and seizure uh, earlier this summer. Jack Smith was named as the special prosecutor. He's a career prosecutor who previously led the Department of Justice's public integrity section and was most recently was the chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague, where he investigated war crimes in Kosovo. So um, just to put a bow on the on you know this roundup of Trump news, how do you think the shifting uh, you know investigations to a special prosecutor impact the political landscape um, of the investigations? What's it going to mean for public perception? Does does this meaningfully change the dynamic? Um, yes or no? Maybe so, Frank. So I think it's a function of how uh, Fox News and the conservative media, OAN, Newsmax, and others cover it, right? So. Uh, if they want to, you know, if they want to take attack of being pro DeSantis, for example, they could give, you know, real weight to these investigations. I, I find that hard to believe, but I'm not going to predict it. Um, but if they do what is easier and what they're better at doing, which is to just kneecap this by saying it's a political witch hunt, it helps Trump greatly. Right. It it puts him in the news. Um, it makes him look like he's getting attacked and then he can fight for the, you know, for the base that he cares about or so uh, supposed to care about. But I think it's that it's a function of how that conservative ecosystem deals with it. Susan, we saw recently, obviously, the Murdoch owned properties. Uh, it was a bunch of news coverage after they seemed to uh, change their tone after the midterms. Um, after so many of Trump's anointeds uh, lost, do you? How do you? How do you think that their coverage of these? Um, it, it's a really interesting point Frank brings up. How how do you think the coverage is going to be on at least the Rupert side, right? Yeah, I, I think that the Fox News and the the New York Post, the New York Post, really is sensitive is a sensitive issue for Donald Trump. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, it is his hometown paper. The New York Times is 
while more prominent, it's the New York Post that really gets him. But I can't help but think that his core supporters are not even watching or reading those publications, you know, watching Fox News. They've gone more right. They are they are in like areas that you and I like ran away from and are very scared of because it is so super conservative and wacky. And this is the home that's the land of where conspiracy theories grow. Um, you know, where Marjorie Taylor Greene is really welcome, you know, this, those kind of things. So I don't think his supporters care that much. And frankly, when it comes to Trump, he's, he doesn't care. You pick on him, you're giving him coverage by picking on him. And he can't wait to see you grovel if you're going to come back. And he actually enjoys that. I mean, Vance, you know, reminds J.D. Vance in Ohio reminds me of that, you know. Um, so Trump is always willing to, to make break bread with someone if they're willing to say how wrong they were. Fair point. OK, let's talk about divided governments um, now that we know. Uh, the outcome, the midterms, what the House is going to look like. Last week, CNN published a story outlining how divided government is more productive than you think. This piece surprised me. Um, Zachary Wolf from CNN spoke with Francis Lee and James Curry, who wrote a book called The Limits of Party, Congress and Lawmaking in a Politicized Era that came out in 2020. And the authors pointed out that since 1980, about two-thirds of the time, we've been operating under divided government. And the unified government usually leads to disappointing election results for the party in power, see uh, 2006, 2010, 2018, 2020. And while Republicans passed their massive tax cuts with a unified government and Democrats used the unified government they had to pass the Affordable Care Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, there have been substantial pieces of bipartisan legislation that have come out of divided government like the CARES Act from 2020 or the criminal justice reform that happened in 2018 with bipartisan support. Uh, even further below the radar was the 2019 bipartisan bill raising the age to buy tobacco to 21. I didn't even know that happened. Like, I would completely missed that. Uh, uh, and repealing unpopular Obamacare taxes. Curry said that Congress often flies its bipartisanship accomplishments under the radar as part of larger bills, which means they don't get as much attention. But if they are not contentious, they get even less attention, Right. The point was not that divided government is preferable, but simply that there isn't a big difference between how successful a divided government or unified government would be in tackling major issues like climate change or immigration reform. So uh, Democrats and Republicans have had a unified government and haven't moved to pass legislation on either of those fronts. Uh, They also pointed out that the filibuster wasn't standing in the way of passing legislation in a unified government, at least not on uh, immigration reform and climate change policy. When Republicans tried to pass immigration reform under Trump, they couldn't get a majority in either chamber. When Democrats tried to do climate change legislation under Obama, they couldn't count to 50 votes in the Senate. Uh, so as, as watchers and practitioners, I'm wondering how you think about this um, and whether you're surprised by any of it. Frank, why don't you lead off? Uh, yeah, so I, I think the history is clear, as they point out, but there is not enough evidence to use past results to predict future. Right. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we can look at what happened in 1995, for example, as an example of what could happen in 2023. I think for me, what I'm really, uh, when it comes to divided government, I think the real question are how do you deal with some really um, must pass bills? Right. So, like, 
we're going to hit a debt limit here at some point. How does that get handled? Right. So in theory, the House has to pass it. The Senate has to pass it. I think Senate obviously is going to have the votes for it. Obviously, the White House would sign it. But how do you get that through the House? I think the same is true. You got to do reauthorization for the defense. That's um, normally is just like gets done. Does it get done this time? There's going to be an ag bill this time, right? Which, uh, you know, ag is always tricky because there's a mix of Republicans and Democrats. Like it's tricky. But I, I think what's different this time, unlike some of those other times, is one, there's not a mandate in the House there was like there was in 1994 or in 2010 or 2014, right? It's not like, you know, the House didn't switch by 40 votes. It's not like McCarthy is going to be speaker by 20 votes um, if he ends up being speaker. And if he's going to be speaker, it's going to come. He's going to have to deal with some real uh, hardcore Republicans to get that done. And so I, I don't know. I don't it doesn't feel like to me this is the same divided government that we've been used to. This isn't McConnell cutting deals. Um, who he's re he is really good at doing that. He's a really good team player when it comes to that. As much as the left hates him, let's just be clear: his record's really good at getting things done to avert disaster. Um, does he have a partner on the House side to do that? And even if he does, does McCarthy have the ability to get that done? I I don't know. We're just going to have to wait and see. That's a it's a it's a point that we have um, been circling around for a while for a few weeks anyway on the show. One that Susan made months and months and months ago about how the narrow majority uh, would impact whoever the speaker's ends up being the ability to um, to operate to get anything done. So Susan, how are you thinking about that now? Um, call, calling calling back to your your forecast uh, many moons ago, uh, the narrow majority now in Congress. How how do you think that's going to impact about government? I think it will lead to basically government stopping. Um, I wish that there was, or I shouldn't say stopping, or, or maybe stopping in some <laughs> cases, actually. Let me take that back in retrospect. There may be a government shutdown. It's quite possible. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. The, the issue is when we're looking at the House, even when Nancy Pelosi was um, just the leader and in the minority, and you know, when she had to deal with Boehner, for example, he, he would want to fund the government, do a continuing resolution. He had fringe people out there. He knew that he didn't have enough votes and they could talk. And she would basically say, as the story goes, well, how many do you need? And he'd be like, well, how many can you get me? She's like, just tell me how many you need. Because just like when um, Republicans this year under Democratic rule in the House, they voted with Democrats on a few issues because it didn't hurt the conference and they needed it for re-election, frankly. Now I wonder what kind of speaker, and if it's not McCarthy, it's not going to be better than McCarthy. So let's look at it that way. Not going to be better. Um, that leader will want to be disruptive. They will not want to get things done. They want to blow things up. And if that's your goal, there's no governance. That's the bigger problem, is that will McCarthy want to reach across the, across the aisle to get some votes? I don't think so, because I think it'll hurt him. I don't think he'll be able to bring this stuff up for a vote, because he'll be so concerned about the extreme on the right. 
which I would argue we should be looking at a little differently, probably, myself included, is that they're not really the extreme anymore. Maybe in 2010, it was the Tea Party and they were fringe candidates. You have a couple come up since then. But now those type of elected officials on the Republican side are MAGA. They've bought into it. I mean, there's still some moderates, and I want to get into that later, but boy, I just, I think that there's too many that McCarthy's too afraid, and there's also Trump. And that is, you know, that is the bigger question is, who is he going to listen to on that, or whoever the speaker is? Okay, let's talk about conflicts of interest. On Tuesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that a nonpartisan government ethics watchdog filed a series of legal complaints alleging the federal government is failing to adequately enforce conflict of interest rules. These filings come after a series of Wall Street Journal articles showing that thousands of federal employees at 50 federal agencies held stock in companies that were regulated by the agencies where they work. The complaint alleges that agencies have repeatedly allowed senior officials to own and trade stock in companies that appear to create conflicts of interest with their official duties. Some of those examples included uh, an EPA official who reported owning oil and gas stocks with his husband, a defense official who traded stock in a Chinese company while the agency deliberated whether or not to blacklist that company, an FTC official who traded stock in Facebook while his office coordinated an investigation into the company. Uh, the journal reported that officials in the office of the Secretary of Defense reported collectively owning between $1.2 and $3.4 million of stock in aerospace and defense companies on average each year. Uh, more than 200 senior EPA officials, uh, nearly one in three, reported investments in companies that were lobbying the agency. Uh, more than five dozen officials at five agencies, including the FTC and the Department of Justice, reported trading stock in companies shortly before their departments announced enforcement actions, like charges or settlements against those same companies. And in the reporting, the journal also alleged that in some cases, when financial holdings caused a conflict, the agencies sometimes simply waived the rules. Now, there have been a lot of conversations about the potential conflicts of interest for members of Congress who own stock, which we'll get to in a minute. But this reporting was looking at agency employees. These are mostly people who aren't in the public eye, but can have enormous power uh, and influence over things that impact the day-to-day lives of everyday Americans, such as public health and food safety, diplomatic relations, and regulating trade. That's all according to Don Fox, who's an ethics lawyer and former general counsel at the agency that oversees conflict of interest rules. What did you both think about this piece? Uh, And how should we be thinking about these potential conflicts of interest? And I guess, do you see a difference in terms of how we ought to treat conflict of interest rules between uh, employees at federal agencies and and electeds, elected members of Congress? Susan? Well, if a CEO can't do insider trading, nor can the junior associate who comes into that company do insider trading. So elected officials shouldn't do it, and the staff that works for them shouldn't be able to do it either. I think it's for the same very clear reasons. You know what's going ahead. It's inside training. I remember this issue. It was a 60 minutes piece. I want to say about 10 years ago. And everyone's hair went on fire when they saw it. And interesting enough, one person who really fought it was Nancy Pelosi. She really did not want to see this. I forget. It was like the Stock Act or something yep. like that. That's right. Um, 
And then recently we've seen Republicans come in. I think it was Tommy Tuberville. Someone was saying how, you know, you're not going to get people who who to serve in government if they have to, you know, if they can't make money while they're serving. I mean, that of course, <laughs> leave it to him to say it that way. But it makes no sense. And it should be banned. It's the problem I have is, frankly, the way it's regulated. And it's got to be across the board. But frankly, we don't have the resources to properly take care of this in, 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 in regulating it. So either it has to, more resources would have to be put to it, or you allow it and it has to be absolutely transparent. Frank, before we get over to the Congress side, do you, do you see a difference between agency employees, regulators uh, versus people who are elected? No, I, I think it's all the same, right? It Whether... So if you take the analogy back to corporate America, right, if you are a VP, you can't use insider trading any more than you can if you're a CEO, right? So like this all just has to stop. I agree with Susan, like the regulation isn't sufficient, right? We can't just build uh, an agency who can just overlook all this. They just need to ban it. They just need to say, if you're going to serve in the government, and if you think back to our founding, right, like part of this is this has become an industry opposed to just like hey, we're going to take a couple months every year and go help the government. However, that idea of like, we're serving, I think we just need to put in a rule that just says, yeah, you got to go blind trust, right? If you're going to go do this, then great. But yeah, you don't get to deal with the stock market. Like you just, that's just not part of the deal. And if that precludes certain people from doing it, it precludes certain people from doing it. But it's very clear from this study and just, gosh, just common, common sense, sense, right? Like, we know these yeah. guys have insider trading. I've worked on the Hill. Yeah. You, you hear things. You have buddies who, <laughs> yeah. even if you're not working on So I wasn't a legislative aide, but my friends were legislative aides. And so they, they could come out of a committee hearing and say, oh, guess what I heard? Like, it just all just needs to stop. And, and the fundamental reason it needs to stop isn't simply because it's wrong morally. It's because we need to get trust. We want yes, the American people to absolutely. trust the government. Well, one way you could do that is if we didn't think that everyone was out to make a buck. And yep. this would be a good step to do it. And the way to do it, I think, is to blanket it, right? That way, don't make it about members of Congress. Don't make it about uh, folks in the executive branch. Just no one. It's done. Yeah. You, you cannot trade individual stock. You have to go put it in a trust, which most presidents yep. and, and most, Most presidents, presidents did do, do, right? Like, have done. Let's just be clear. Until a lot of presidents have done the, they have been awesome about this. And they should just take that model and just say, yeah, it applies to all of you. It sucks for you. Fine. You're going to have to go a couple years not making more money. But, you know, to the average American, like, that's not how they live their lives. They don't get to benefit from information. So, like, the guys and serving called, the called government should service for a reason. Yeah. I, to me, this is just yeah. like a no brainer, but it also, I'll be honest, it, it's not going to get done. It's a well, no so brainer, but the, just one quick question. Like Chris yeah. Collins, former rep from Buffalo area, he actually got busted yeah. for it. He went, <laughs> right, went to jail for, I forgot. Yeah, went right. for jail. That's I mean, right. he got a pardon by, yeah. by, I believe he got a pardon by Trump. Oh, and one of the things that he <laughs> got busted for was also telling his brother. Yeah. Now, so my, it brings up the question like, okay, so we ban employees and we ban elected officials. Are their spouses banned? Mm. Are their children banned? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm not, I don't mean I'm not to play a, like I'm not the- a lawyer. I didn't 
I, I also don't have a degree no, no, no. in finance. I'm, I'm being a little bit of the devil's advocate only because I think your point about trust yeah. is, is huge. so important. But, but here's what I do know, Susan, is like start somewhere. So like, yes, let's start I by agree. banning the members and their immediate family, right? Their spouse, maybe not their immediate, just their spouse. Let's just start, or their partner. Let's just start there. And if, if, and if after 10 years we find out or five years that that wasn't sufficient, yeah, then maybe we got to do something else. But like, I don't want this. I don't want it to be that like, be, because we don't know all of the things that could go wrong, that we shouldn't start with something. Um, you know, I'm somewhat optimistic that there's some folks on the far right who kind of see this because they're not from the Goldman Sachs world. They actually could play into this, right? I think we heard Matt Gates of all people who I, I, it hurts my head that I, when he said something out loud and I was like, oh my gosh, he's a hundred percent right. I'm like, I agree wow, there's something wrong well, with me. Well, that's part of the populist movement yeah, yeah. in the country that you see yeah. from in but, some places on the right and other places on the correct. left. Like there's just no business yeah. these guys. All right, you don't money. have to put it that way. Well, right. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. Can you I just apologize. say maybe he's not wrong? I apologize to all of Ron's audience for that. <laughs> well, no, you guys have you guys have just like arrived at exactly the point I wanted to discuss that is so interesting because First of all, the the bigger, like the umbrella story here, as Frank so well put it, is this is about trust. Ultimately, this is about trust. But the political, the, the interesting thing about this to me politically is that it's it there is a shift that's happening uh, between the two sort of what I would expect to be the default positions on both parties, which is on the left, Nancy Pelosi, as you said, was opposed to doing anything about this only a year ago. And in the art, when she said that at a, at a press conference, we'll roll the clip in a minute. And now uh, in the article we're talking about, the journal reported that Kevin McCarthy is considering an ethics reform package, including language banning or restricting members of Congress and senior executive branch employees from owning or trading stock. And I think this has a lot to do with this, with, with the populism that we've seen and what it's doing to the constituencies in both parties, how, how, how they're shifting. Uh, so before the midterms, McCarthy did say that if Republicans took control of the House, they'd consider a prohibition on holding or trading stocks. So they've been relatively consistent here. They also pointed out McCarthy didn't support any of the Democratic bills proposing a ban uh, because, you know, positional. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, by all accounts, the likely successor uh, of Nancy Pelosi as the top House Democrat, said in September that he supports efforts to restrict trading. Um, after an insider investigation last December, uh, revealed that 49 members of Congress from both parties and nearly 200 senior staff members violated the law designed to stop insider trading and prevent conflicts of interest. Pelosi was asked about her take in a press conference, and here's what she said. No to the second one. This is a free market and people, we are a free market economy. They should be able to participate in that. So after her initial rejection, of a possible ban. Now that's that is a quote I would have expected from a Republican on this issue, right? That's but 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 the world is upside down now. After her initial rejection of a possible ban, legislation picked up steam in both the House and Senate. Um, Pelosi's stance has shifted over the last eleven months, and in January, she told reporters that if members wanted to create a ban, she'd be okay. By February, she shifted from being okay to saying she'd support it. In September, she announced that the Democrats would bring legislation to the House floor that would bring new restrictions on lawmakers uh, buying and selling stock. And then at her urging, 
uh, California Democrat uh, Zoe Lofgren drafted legislation that would limit stock trading by members of Congress, their spouses, dependent children, staff, and members of the judiciary. Uh, it's worth noting here that Walter Schaub, former uh, director of the Office of Government Ethics, who was appointed by Obama, called that bill weak and dangerous in a Time Magazine op-ed because it allowed for fake blind trusts. Uh, not good. Um Late in September, the bill was punted to the lame duck session because the leadership-led bill did not have the votes to pass in the House. So anyway, I want to get back to this changing position of congressional leadership um, and what it tells us about the changes in the political environment overall and the constituencies that both that all of these leaders are, are, are dealing with. Um, I can't remember who brought up the populism point first, but maybe you want to expand on that. Well, yeah, because when you can have a, a, a Macket's and, you know, basically Trump supporters, like the voters who came out in 2016 for Donald Trump that no one planned on seeing or they had never voted before. Those were like the populist folks that came out and were like, this is my guy. He understands me. He may be a billionaire or a fake billionaire, but he gets me. And I think we also saw it with Fetterman in his primary um, in Pennsylvania, because he was not, he was far from the establishment. He was certainly more populist than his opponent, Connor Lamb. And he was kind of like the next version of, of Ryan in Ohio, who was, who's been like the working man, the union guy. Um, and, and Fetterman took it to another level. I wouldn't be surprised to see both parties trending to that populist position. But the this piece of legislation, I also, of course, I'm very jaded when I look at Washington and, I, and it's something that Frank brought up earlier. Okay, so maybe they agree on this, but what else are they going to put in it? <laughs> there will be something in that bill that one side will kill it, like will not support it as a result. And, you know, it's just bound to happen. But to, to, to Frank's point, you got to start somewhere. And because something is considered too weak is, is BS. Like you've got to try it. You've got to do it because it goes back to the bigger thing you brought up and that's trust. People need to start trusting the, the system again and trusting the pillars of our democracy. And if we have to be a little rougher, I mean, in New York, when I left the governor's office, I'm not allowed to lobby for at least a year, at least if these guys who work for the, the in the House or Senate, if they leave their committees, they go into the private sector, they turn around and they make a gazillion dollars writing the legislation and submitting it to their their counterparts. So it's you got to have something there. Ron, to your point about the politics of this, right, if you if you look at the polling, there's something like I don't have the numbers exactly right, but something like 40 percent of Americans say that they have no money invested in the stock market, not in retirement, not in individual stock. And that, I again, I'm going to make a guess here, that 40% is not educated uh, voters, right? Highly educated voters, right? So if you look at the trend, especially around this 2014 to now, this Trump trend, this movement of those voters, this is a perfect um, piece of legislation for them, right? They don't, they're not making any money off the stock market. And so they don't understand why anyone in Congress should make any money off the stock market. And so you could see why this is 
transitioning from the left to the right or, you know, from one side to the other. It just, it makes sense just based on the numbers. I also think it, um, it, it goes to one of the most common reframes that I see on the right, which is that the people who run our government and wealthy elites essentially get to operate by another set of rules. They don't have to follow the same rules that you and I would have to follow in our everyday lives. And this is, this, this just is one of the most beautiful pieces of evidence for them to, to bring to the table in support of that view. And, uh, and, and the fact that it persists and the fact that, as you said, it probably isn't going to get done only, only, only serves to validate their frustration and rage at, at, the brokenness of our government. Yeah, and it, it, I, like you, I don't. If you're part of this economy where you don't have passive income, like this is yeah. really hard to justify, right? And I think that's. I will tell you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but there is one place just in this economy, and and Trump. I, I think at least on the right, some Trump supporters woke up more in in understanding the stock market, even if they weren't invested in it, because Trump talked about it so much. So it did become a point. And now when we're looking at economic tough times, when you have unions, for example, the, the cities and states can't make their, their, their payments to union members, um, pension funds rather. So that becomes another thing. Like I think it rolls into one over the other that they, people get drawn into the conversation, even if they aren't directly um, bought into it. The, the other thing I would say about this that I think is very telling is my guess, I'm not an expert, but my guess is what the executive branch staff or uh, administrators, what Congress is doing when it comes to stock market is negligible, right? Like my guess is there's just not enough of them, enough of money to move the market. The fact that they're not willing to fix this just tells you how much money they're making from doing this, right? This is an easy political win. And the current situation is just not that dire. But like the willing, their their unwillingness to get it done tells you how lucrative this is to them. I mean, it must just be staggering. Because otherwise, they just get it done and get a win. They, One party would right. do it. So they would right. just be like, "Oh, we're going to get <laughs> that this is, done, man." That's but they're sheesh. not willing to do it because because enough of them are making so much money off of this when they're. And there, you could just see them justify in their head, right? As a senator, they're making, let's call, I forget what the Senate uh, salary is these days. Let's call it 275, right? And they're like, well, this is BS, right? If I was running Purdue, I'd be making $8 million a year. And so like, I should be able to do this. And it's- I will say this it's, probably- it's a, it's, a, it's a free market economy. Yeah, right. We should be able to <laughs> participate right. in it. Although I will say it goes back to, I think- because a lot of elected officials don't want to show that kind of money yeah, yeah. <laughs> on their financial yeah. disclosure, you have a lot of sisters or brothers yeah, yeah. or uncles or grandparents Paul, or grandchildren. Paul Pelosi was doing Nancy Pelosi's trading famously. Oh, and by the yeah. way, I just have to bring this up because I thought this was a beautiful piece of trolling that uh, at a company called Unusual Whales did a couple of months ago, which was they created ETFs that you could buy and sell yourself to mimic the trades of 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 
Republicans and Democrats. They had what they had a Republican <laughs> ETF and a Democrat ETF, and it was all the Republican members of Congress and all the Democratic members of Congress. They tracked all of their trades and created ETFs to mimic them. So you could literally buy and sell the same stocks, make the same trades that Congress was making. I just thought it was who made more, and they did it to bring attention to this problem. and And I thought it was beautiful. Like, yeah. But it's still, I mean, that's the point, right? Like it doesn't, the money isn't the issue. It's the fact that it just undermines the trust that everyone has. And it's just, it, to me, it's just so simple. Like why, if you cared these, uh, let me just go on a rant here, right? If you're a Democrat who cares about the January 6th stuff, which you rightly should, I'm all for it, then you should care about this, right? Like we don't want to undermine democracy. Well, this is undermining democracy. It's just that simple. So go fix it. You can't fix everything. You could easily fix this. Get it done. All right. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching. Under the radar, over the radar, not even on the radar. Susan, what do you got? All right. Even though we've talked about the likelihood of Kevin McCarthy or, you know, it one of the craziest extremists, I should say, on the right becoming speaker. I'm looking to see if there's not a play to be made by some moderates and pushing, saying like, I've had enough because now is the time to do it. Like, because you're going to have Jim Jordan is, is, is now the establishment. He's going to be a committee chairman. Think about that. Jim Jordan, committee chairman. God knows what Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be on. I'm just hoping it's not education because of the obvious. Um, maybe it's time for the moderates to be, quote, on the fringe. If Jim Jordan's the establishment, if you're moderate, you are on the fringe. And we had two, two members of Congress who voted to impeach Trump. Now, granted, it was only two out of 10 that survived it, but that's two that maybe they want they to survive step the midterms. Up. They survived the midterms. Maybe they find a few other friends who are in the problem solvers group or whatever who want to actually say, hey, you want my vote? This is what you need to do. Because I think that and I think there may be some talking during the holiday season. Um, so I'd be on the lookout for that maybe in about a week or two. OK, good look ahead. Frank, what are you watching? So what I'm watching right is tonight. Right. T today is November 23rd is Alaska. Right. So what what we're supposed to learn tonight in Alaska is they, they have this uh, ranked choice voting. Murkowski, Senator Murkowski is slightly ahead. Um, but the way this works, right, is they eliminate the third candidate, take all the second voters of the third candidates. Right. Whoever voted first for the third candidate, second vote, add them to the two top people. And then whoever then crushes over 50 wins. Incident runoff. Uh, we don't have to do the Georgia thing. It's Let's just really clear. This is a great way to do it. Um, good job, Alaska. I'm watching that. I, you know, Lisa Murkowski uh, doesn't get the credit um, she and her team deserves. She is a amazing politician. She's also a thoughtful uh, legislator. But what she's been able to do, right? I mean, she literally won in what was it, 2010, as a write-in candidate. With as, As a, a writing write with a Can name, you spell that's right. I still I've worked twenty five <laughs> years or twenty two years in this town. I still can't spell her name. She is remarkable. Her team is remarkable. If she pulls this off, which I 
I, I think she will tonight. Like, good for her. Good for democracy. Good for the Republicans. We need more Lisa Murkowski's in the Senate. Um, so that's what I'm watching tonight. Now, if that doesn't work, Ron, for for you and your editing purposes, obviously I'm watching Georgia, right? We're, you know, two weeks or so away, two and a half weeks away from this crazy runoff with a crazy person and a decent human being. Um, you know, I think it's going to be really telling about who turns out, right? This is not, it turns out this election isn't about the determination of who controls the Senate. So I think it will be really interesting to see the turnout mechanism in Georgia. I think if Warnock pulls this off, Stacey Abrams and her cohort deserve enormous credit. Warnock's team as well, obviously, but it just shows that uh, Stacey Abrams has done a heck of a job of learning how to uh, continually get folks out and voting. And that's um, what I'll be watching. I think that's an interesting point you just made. That the the outcome of this race, who turns out, is actually going to be more interesting now that the Senate is not on the line. I think it's going to be more instructive. Very, very good point. Yeah, just remember in the in the general election, you had thirty thousand votes on the Libertarian line with Abrams and Kemp, and then eighty thousand, fifty thousand more than the the, the amount of victory uh, or before it hit a runoff, um, go towards the Libertarian. So that tells you you had 80,000 you know, 80, votes casted on the Libertarian line, uh, 50,000, which were drop-offs from, I believe, Kemp saying, no, I will, I will vote. A lot of people didn't vote, but it was more that they chose actively not to vote for Walker, which tells me they're not showing up. Yeah, I, so Susan, I agree with you. I've learned not to predict, but yes. Like if you weren't willing, if you weren't willing. Oh, you just say you're wrong. You just say you're wrong and admit it and it's fine. Willing, I do it all the time. If you weren't willing to vote for Walker when you were standing there already voting, right. it does seem hard for me to believe that then you're going to show up to cast one vote. That just, right. I agree. Totally. Really good flag. Okay, gang, uh, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss the World Cup and the competing interests when doing business with oppressive regimes. Where can everybody find you on the internet? Well, Frank, we know that you're not on the <laughs> Not on the internet. Uh, Susan, are you still on the internet? I am still, still on, on Twitter. Twitter. Um, for now? For now. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know what Elon has planned for Thanksgiving. Maybe it'll be no Twitter <laughs> for you. Um, but <laughs> if you can turn into Twitter, tune into Twitter, it will be uh, Del Percio S. Twitter is just such a dumpster fire. You can find me on Twitter at Ron Steslow. I have stopped tweeting very much. Me too. Like occasionally I will tweet, but you can DM me there if you want to, if you want to send a note or whatever, you can do that. You can also email us uh, at podcast at politicology.com. But for now, I'm on Twitter and uh, maybe somewhere else soon. We'll see. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. 
And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.